Good morning. It is so good to be back with you after being gone a couple of weeks. Um, just, I'm excited to be able to share this morning. Hey, did you know that Easter is only four weeks away? Um, my guess is that you've got two different kinds of people that you're friends with. One, one of those types of people are, are people that probably grew up in church and are not there now. And, um, and they, they really would like to come to church to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. They really would like to do that. They're just not really sure where to go, what to do. And your invitation could make a huge difference for them. The other, the other set of friends that you probably have don't have any connection with any church, should never have that kind of thing. And, they, and I think that they probably have some questions about what Easter is all about. This would be a great year to invite them to come and to just say, hey, would you, would you want to come to church with me on Easter Sunday? Because I think that, you, I think that you'd find it incredibly interesting and that, that you might have a sense of, of who God is and what he's doing. So um, you got four weeks to do that. Take advantage of that. Um, the, uh, you know, the backstory to any story is really critical. It's the, the things that happen upstream, the things that happen before you actually get to the account, the event, the, the thing that you experience. Um, the the um, TV series Lost was a master at backstories, right? You remember that it, there were always, you would see something and then it would just go to this major flashback, or it might start with flashback, that laid the groundwork for the events that were gonna take place in that particular episode. Today's passage of scripture um, is a unique one. It demonstrates a side of Jesus that um, is not a side of Jesus that we are particularly familiar with. It, it actually is probably a side of Jesus that if this, if this passage that we're going to look at is all that you'd see, that you'd think, I, I'm not really sure I want that Jesus. I, that's weird and different, and I don't not, I'm just not sure that that's what I want uh, to be a part of my life. Um, pause that for a second and just think that we're going to get there through the back story because, it, because what we look at today is going to seem like it's uh, in contradiction to, to a lot of scripture. When we read a passage that we don't understand, like we're going to read a little bit later this morning, we assume one of two things typically. We assume either that the scripture is wrong that what we read, that that's just not right. Or we assume that we just need to take it by faith. Oh yeah, I don't understand, but I, that's something I just need to accept by faith. Sometimes neither of those things are the case. What we really need to do is dive in and study more, understand the background a little bit better. We need to take off our 21st century American eyes, our lens, and, and really dive into what was going on in scripture at that point in time to really understand it. That's where we're going today. So um, I say all that to just give you a little advanced warning. I'm gonna nerd out on history, all right? Um, I, I, it's been a really, really fun week studying this particular passage. Um, stick with me. If you're watching online, stick with me. Get to the end because the end is so worth it in terms of the truth that God has for us in this. Um, if, uh, if the history kind of bogs you down, send me a question for the podcast this week that says, can't you just get to the point and forget all the backstory stuff, all right? Um, 
Here we go. We're going to dive into the backstory. About 20 years before Jesus was born, there was a king in Judea named Herod the Great. Herod the Great, like most politicians, wanted to be remembered in history. And Herod the Great's ticket to being remembered in history was to build mammoth structures. He built lots of big buildings. He built the, the fortress on Masada, that, uh, the, the ruins of that still exist there. You can go in Israel and see that. He, he, uh, he built the city Caesarea Maritime, where when you look at the Mediterranean Ocean and see the aqueduct that's there, Herod the Great's the guy who built all of that stuff, and you can see the ruins that are there. Herod the Great also built, uh, he built a temple for himself in Jericho, and he built the temple for the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. He took what was there, what had been rebuilt after Solomon's temple had been destroyed, and he just strengthened it. He built it much larger and, and just made it a place that the Jews could come and worship in an incredible way. That, uh, that um, building the, the, the building that Herod underwent for the temple in Jerusalem lasted 46 years, okay? There, there you have a picture of what the temple looked like. Um, there's, a, there's a model that's there in Jerusalem that's to scale, and that's kind of the picture. It was, it was massive. Um, the temple was the center of Jewish worship. It was built on a high place in the city. You can't really tell it from that picture, but it was built kind of on a mountain. Jerusalem's up high, and it was, it was some place that everyone could see. At the far end of the temple, there in the center, behind the columns was the Holy of Holies. Go to the next slide. That Behind that area was the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. He could only come in one day a year where he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Um, it, was, it was specially set forth for God. Uh, go back to the other slide, if you would. Outside, outside the Holy of Holies, you can kind of see there's an area there that was called the Court of Israel. That was the place that the, that the priests offered sacrifices. The Israelites would come and they would sacrifice animals for their sins. They would sacrifice for the nation. That's what took place there. Closer in uh, to the front of that screen was a place called the Court of the Women. The women weren't allowed in the Court of Israel, but the women could go in there to worship. And if you look on the outsides, that was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a, it was a place specifically set up where foreigners, um, Gentiles, and eunuchs could go to worship God. Interestingly enough, if you were a man, and um, you were fixed, you couldn't go into the temple to worship. You could only go into the court of the Gentiles. Um, the temple was massive. If you go, go ahead and go to the Dome of the Rock slide. Um, when you see Jerusalem now, you see the Dome of the Rock. That's probably the prominent thing that's there. And that wall that's in front of it, this wall right here, that's, the, that's what exists of the wall from Herod's temple when he built it in the first century. These are people who are praying. The, the western wall the, uh, is sometimes called the wailing wall. You get a sense of the size of how large the temple was. That's just one part of the western wall. Um, for, some, for some statistics to just understand, the, those columns that we saw on the Holy of Holies, they were 30 feet tall. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says it took three grown men linking their arms to reach around the columns. They were that thick around. The court of the Gentiles 
was 500 yards long. Go back to that. Yeah, the court of the Gentiles was 500 yards long and 325 yards wide. It was roughly 35 acres. That was the plot of the temple. It was a mammoth, uh, mammoth place. Um, the, the court of the Gentiles, that area there on the outside, it, that was the place where people were able to buy animals for sacrifice. Um, they, when, when they came in to offer sacrifices from out of town. During Passover, the high holy time for the Jews, every family had to offer a Passover lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, and sacrifice it to help them remember that God had passed over the nation of Israel when the angel of death came, when they were, when they were still captive in Egypt. People came from all over the world. Jews came from all over the world to, to be a part of that Passover celebration. And they couldn't bring their lambs with them because if they did and the lamb broke a leg, if the lamb got sick, if the lamb was injured, it would no longer be a lamb that was without spot or blemish and couldn't be used. So everybody who came from out of town, they were purchasing their lambs inside the court of the Gentiles in that area. Um, in addition to lambs that were for sale there, there were other objects that were available to be sacrificed to God there in the temple. There was ritually a pure, or what we would call kosher wine, oil, salt, um, and other animals, bulls, goats, and birds, that all were for sale in that area. Um, to give you a sense of the scope of what took place there, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that one year at Passover, 255,600 lambs were offered for sacrifice, lots and lots of, of, of lambs. Um, another commentator says that one merchant there in the court of the Gentiles offered 3,000 sheep for sale per day to be sacrificed. Pause that for a second. Let me just shift gears just a little bit. Every year, a Jewish, the, the Jewish men had to pay a temple tax. Um, Exodus 30, verse 13 says this, each one who crosses over to those already counted is to, give half, uh, is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel that weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meaning, for the temple. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So all the Jewish men, had to give a half shekel offering. Here's the thing about the temple tax, though. It had to be paid for with Jewish money, with a, with a Jewish shekel. At this time in history in Israel, there were three different kinds of currency that were available. There was Roman money that had Caesar imprinted on it. If you think about Jesus' um, Jesus interaction where, where he's asked whether it's lawful to pay tax or not, and Jesus says, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. So the Roman money had Caesar's face imprinted on it. There was Greek money that had um, Greek gods and Greek uh, historical figures that was printed on it. And then there, there was the Jewish money, the Tyrian money. And um, it didn't have any faces on it. it was, there was simply a, a piece of metal that was used um, as currency. You couldn't pay the temple tax and you couldn't buy animals to sacrifice using Greek or Roman money because the images on that money 
um, that would amount to, um, uh, to idol worship. So you had to use Jewish money to, in order to be able to do that. One estimate I read said that at this time in history, about 40,000 people lived in Jerusalem. And um, during Passover, the, the population of Jerusalem swelled to more than a quarter of a million people. So from 40,000 to 250,000. Um, all of those people had to have sacrifices, had to pay the temple tax, had to buy the things that, that were there. Um, have you ever traveled abroad and gone through the process of exchanging money? Um, to me, I, I have some real vivid images when I've traveled internationally. What typically happens is when you, um, when you get in country, if you go to a government office, there is one rate of exchange as you exchange the money. If you go to a bank, there's a different rate that's a little bit higher. If you go to the market, there's a different rate that's even higher. And if you try and exchange your money at the airport or as you enter the country, you, um, it's like lots higher. That, because they're taking advantage of these people who come in who don't know what the exchange rate is at that point in time. Um, they get gouged. The people who, who uh, exchange money at the airport make lots of money. Um, oftentimes, um, in, in port cities, the people who exchange money work together so that there might be somebody who has, a greater, who has a good rate of exchange on Monday and his pal has a, better, has a good rate of exchange on Tuesday. Um, they kind of move stuff around so that they can share that business and together agree on what the price is going to be that, that they're going to have for that exchange rate. Um, the thing about what was going on with the exchange in the temple was that the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and the Sadducees were in charge of all of the commerce that took place inside the temple. Not Rome, who was really in charge, but the Jewish religious leaders were in charge. Um, now, if, if you think back to that picture of the temple, that space was so large that people were actually physically cutting through the temple to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other. Rather than walking around that 35 acres with the big walls, they would cut through one gate, cut through another gate. And so the end result of that was that everything that happened in the temple was just crazy chaotic. It was incredibly busy. The court of the Gentiles during Passover was kind of like, um, kind of like a mall parking lot on Black Friday. When there were mall parking lots and... Black Friday, right? Um, people were packed together, buying and selling sacrifices, exchanging money. At Passover, there was so much activity that the court of the, uh, of the Gentiles um, was filled with Jewish people, and there was no place for Gentiles or foreigners or the, or the eunuchs. They were essentially run out of space because of all of the commerce that was there, and the Jews didn't really care about it because they didn't like the Gentiles anyway. Um, they weren't a part of God's people. They weren't a part of the chosen people. And so it was like, you know what? If they don't have room, too bad for them. That's the backstory on the temple that's critical to the passage of scripture we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes. Another important part of the backstory is um, it, it involves fig trees. Um, not many of us grow fig trees in Michigan, right? Um, let me give you some background. Fig trees are, har the fig harvest 
happens typically in late summer, somewhere between the middle of August and, uh, and the middle of October. After the figs are harvested, they, figs are harvested, they lose their leaves. Um, during the winter, little buds grow on the fig trees that are called pagim. And, and they're there, and the buds just stay there. They just kind of stay there all the way through the winter. They grow a little bit, and they're edible. Um, it's the, the kind of thing that poor people would go and eat those, um, those pagum off the fig trees before the fig harvest actually came in. And then in the spring, while the, while the, the pagum is still on the fig tree, the tree would start to, to leaf and, um, and when the leaves would be there, then the pagum would begin to fall and the figs actually would begin to grow. Um, that's all important to the story that we're going to look at in a second. One last thing about fig trees. Uh, go ahead and show the, 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 yeah, that's what figs look like when they're growing. We see those all the time in Michigan, right? Um, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 13, describes the pagum, the, the green figs, the early figs that, that uh, we'll be taking a look at in just a second. Um, it's important to know that the prophets from the Old Testament that were famous for all the Jews c- consistently compared the nation of Israel to a fig tree. There are all kinds of references pr- in the prophecies about the nation of Israel being like a fig tree that blossoms, that's cut down, whatever. Um, okay, that's the end of the backstory on the fig trees. Uh, and now the backstory in, in terms of the timeline, what's going on. I'm setting this up for, we are going to get to the scripture, okay? Everyone nod your head. We are going to get to the scripture, all right? Here we go. Um, let, let's just talk through kind of where we've been the last three weeks and, and um, what this week looks like. A few weeks before Passover, we don't know exactly how many, could have been uh, maybe as few as two, maybe as many as eight. Jesus goes to the home of Lazarus. And raises him from the dead. Mary and Martha call him. Lazarus has died. Jesus raises him from the dead. That's in Bethany. That's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. On the Saturday night before Passover. Jesus comes back to Bethany. And he has dinner at Mary and Martha's house with Lazarus there. And, and Mary anoints Jesus with the, with, the, with the nard that Jake talked about. right? Uh, with that nard that's there. Um, that happens on Saturday night. On Sunday, before Passover, last week we, we looked at the passage, is the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and all of Jerusalem coming out um, to, to cheer for him, to welcome him, to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's one passage that we oftentimes miss that happens in the midst of the triumphal entry. As Jesus is coming down from Bethany and getting ready to go into Jerusalem, Um, to meet the people. Luke 19 says this, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus, as he goes into Jerusalem, says bad stuff's going to happen to Jerusalem. Bad stuff's going to happen to the temple. And you need to be aware of that. We often miss that picture as Jesus is coming into the town for the, for the day that we celebrate 
um, with palm branches and, and shouting Hosanna. Jesus spends that night, Sunday night, in Bethany, probably at the home of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus as well. Um, it's interesting to me that with all the people there, there's no room for Jesus, who ultimately is the Messiah in Jerusalem, just like at his birth. No room for Jesus. Jesus said about himself, foxes have holes, birds have their nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's just interesting that he's a guest in Bethany this, this particular week. On Monday before Passover, so the triumphal entry is on Sunday, Monday before Passover, Jesus passes by a fig tree for breakfast before heading into the temple, and he spends Monday night in, um, in Bethany again. Tuesday before Passover, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem with his disciples again, probably to preach, probably spends the night back in Bethany again. Wednesday looks a lot the same. Thursday is the day that they celebrate Passover. Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. Thursday night, Jesus goes to the garden. He prays. He's arrested. He spends Thursday night in the home of Caiaphas, probably in a pit in the basement of, at Caiaphas' house. And on Friday, he's put on trial before Herod and Pilate um, and ultimately executed on the cross. That, the, all of that timeline is important to just understanding where this particular passage falls. So now, take out your Bibles. Here we go. We're in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Feel free to look at it in the app. Look on screen. The next day, this is the day after the triumphal entry, Monday morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went, he went to find out if it had any fruit, the pagan that we talked about. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Figs come later in the year. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Jesus expected there to be that winter fruit, that pagum on the tree, because the tree's in leaf. When the tree was in leaf, you would expect that it would be full of pagum. There's not any. And so Jesus is getting ready to respond. Um, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. Um, Jesus entered the, uh, Jesus says, to the fig tree, uh, nobody's going to eat from you again. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He was stopping that, that cutoff through the temple. And as he taught him, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you understand when you hear the backstory how that makes sense that Jesus would be so upset at this point that that concept of the den of robbers involved the price gouging that took place with the exchange of money, the price gouging that took place with the, with the people who were captive to buy their sacrifice that they had to offer at, at Passover there in the court of the Gentiles. That when Jesus said, this is my, my, God's house is supposed to be a place for all nations, that the court of the Gentiles had been so filled with commerce that there was no space for anyone except Jews inside the temple. We talk about this event, about the cleansing of the temple and, and, 
and th that's the terminology that we use. In reality, it's, it's more like Jesus threw some dynamite in the temple and it just blew up, like he threw a hand grenade there. Because what, what Jesus does in turning over the tables in the temple, when he clears the temple, um, it threatens the economic base of all the religious leaders. It disturbs everything. When we think Jesus cleansed the temple, we have this sense that he turned over every table. And that's, that can't really be the case because of the size of everything that was there. But if you've ever been any place large, when there is a ruckus, when, when all of a sudden something significant happens, everybody turns and looks at what's going on and it calms everything down. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. This event, Jesus cleansing the temple, scripture tells us it's the peace. It's the place that moved the Sanhedrin to action. They'd been saying, um, we can't let Jesus keep doing this anymore. We can't let him keep healing. We can't, you know, we can't let him raise people from the dead like he did Lazarus. But this is the place when their economic base is threatened that the Sanhedrin then says, we have to do something about Jesus right now. Um, where did that term den of robbers come from? Jeremiah 7 says this, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Why was it a den of robbers? Because people were being cheated financially, and people were being cheated of their opportunity to worship as well. Um, Isaiah 56 says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my altar will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Jesus understood that he... Understand that Jesus wasn't just angry about the fig tree, that Jesus wasn't just angry because there was a lot of stuff going on in the temple. He was angry. He took action because they had lost sight of who God was and, and, um, and that, that tree hadn't borne fruit. And Jesus was trying to communicate in a very clear way that things were going to change. Jesus' view of the temple was not that its primary purpose was a place for sacrifices to be made or a static dwelling place for God to live in the Holy of Holies, but that the temple was a place for prayer and teaching and an outward reflection, a demonstration to all of humanity of God's nature, of who God was, and that in all of the commerce, all of that had gotten lost. When Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus was dealing with a moral issue a racial issue, and a spiritual issue. The moral issue had to do with the cheating, with the inflated prices that were there. The racial issue had to do with the Jews' heart against the Gentiles, that their prejudice against the Gentiles. The spiritual issue, uh, it was about the misuse of the temple. 
and denying the nature of God through what was happening there. Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus was not trying to purify and just clean up the temple. He was trying to help the disciples understand, along with the destruction of the fig tree, that the purpose of the temple was going to be abolished in just a few days. The destruction of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple and what's going to happen on Tuesday morning are all tied together to help the disciples understand in a very clear way and an object lesson that everything was going to change and that the temple wouldn't be needed anymore. Um, Verse 18 of Mark 11, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, back to Bethany. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. It's dead. A few years ago, I hired a guy to clean weeds out of um, the gravel places around our house. And he came with his sprayer and, and sprayed, and it killed all the bad stuff. Um, in a wonderful way. He also sprayed our ornamental grass. You know that grass that's four or five feet tall? It just looks so cool. And I remember after he left, you could see that grass just starting to shrivel up and die. And it's never grown back, right? Um, That's the picture. That's what happens as the disciples walk by this tree, this fully grown tree, which may have been, it was probably 10 to 15 feet high, but may have been as big as 25 feet. They walk by and all of a sudden all the leaves have withered and, and the tree is beginning to fall in on itself in 24 hours. Um, it was a prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Don't forget the prophets talked about Israel as a fig tree often. It was not an angry reaction because Jesus was hungry and the tree didn't have any fruit on it. It was all designed to teach them something. Um, Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Is anybody going, what? Wait, where did that stuff on prayer come from? Don't miss this. Jerusalem was on a hill. The temple was on a hill in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart that it's going to happen, it's going to be done. What Jesus was saying is it was connected to the cleansing of the temple and the destruction of the fig tree. All of this is going to go away. You don't grasp it yet, but all of this is going to go away. There's not going to be any need for it anymore because a perfect sacrifice is going to be given in just a few days. Um, Jesus' teaching on prayer right there is not the name it, claim it stuff. That if you just believe enough, Aunt Martha's going to be healed. If you just believe enough, you're going to get a better job. It's not that at all. Jesus was saying, look, you don't understand. Everything's going to change. And you need to pray believing. You need to understand that God is powerful enough to do anything. But it's not about what we want when we pray. 
and just asking God to jump into that. Um, the earliest commentary available to us from the book of Mark, some uh, a commentator wrote it in the fifth century. So, uh, you know, 400 years after Jesus, it says that the destruction of the fig tree was an object lesson, an enacted parable is what he said, to teach about the coming judgment on the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Um, those events, the destruction of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, um, seeing, the, seeing the tree withered the next day, they're all three the same events trying to teach the disciples something. Here's where I want to land. This is, this, is, this is really the heart of the message, and I just have a few minutes to get there, but let me land here. Jesus is serious about our relationship with him and our relationship with God. We tend to see our relationship with Jesus as, yeah, that's one more part of our life. Jesus is serious. He was serious enough with the disciples to destroy a tree. He was serious enough to take on the religious leadership that existed and to destroy all the commerce that was going on in the temple to get their attention, to help them understand, you've missed what is most important. Jesus is serious. Um, here, here are my takeaways. The first is this. A disciple of Jesus has to bear fruit. Jesus cursed the fig tree because it didn't have any fruit. A disciple of Jesus has to bear fruit. Um, when Jesus found that tree fully leafed, he expected there to be fruit. There wasn't any, and so he cursed it. Fruitlessness brings judgment from Jesus. We've got to bear fruit. If you, go, if you just advance forward um, uh, 48 hours, Jesus is going to be saying to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. If you don't remain in me, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. What's fruit look like? I think scripture tells us fruit, the fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Um, we've got to live out our faith in a way that it dramatically impacts our lives. Uh, second takeaway is this. God cares deeply about the marginalized. I, I, I've got to tell you, when I began to study this passage, I didn't have any sense of the court of the Gentiles, how big it was, and all of the stuff that took place there. God designed the temple to include a space for people who were far from him. And I think the challenge for us today in saying, okay, what do we do? What do we do as a result of this passage of scripture? It's that we have to have a heart for the marginalized as well. It may be that you're here this morning and you feel like I'm the one who's marginalized. I'm the one way out on the side. I feel like I don't belong. I, I, does God really love me? Let me tell you, he does. God has a heart for the marginalized. And if you're a follower of Jesus, man, we've got to open our eyes to the people who are out on the edges that everyone else ignores. And we've got to embrace them because that's the heart of God. Third thing is this, God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. Think about the power that it took with your words to kill a tree that was fully mature. Think about the power that, um, that God has that's above anything that we can imagine, the power to stand up to religious leaders on their home court, the power to turn over an entire religious system 
the Old Testament, the New Testament. God has the power to save no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bleak it seems, no matter how far away he sees. God has incredible power, the power to change your life. The fourth thing is this. If the temple in Jerusalem was not immune to judgment, nothing is. And that includes the United States. If the temple in Jerusalem was not immune to the judgment of God, nothing is. It's so easy for us to think that our Christianity, our relationship with Jesus is tied into our culture and our history as a nation. It cannot be. God doesn't need the United States to accomplish his will. Uh, man, don't, miss, don't misunderstand me. I am grateful to live in the United States with the freedoms that we have and all that we can do. But God doesn't need our country you would have thought, the Jews thought everything depended upon the temple, on their ability to sacrifice. And Jesus turned it upside down. When we read this passage of scripture, this section from, from Mark, from the book of Mark, it's easy to read it and to just think, Jesus had a bad day, man. He was hungry. There wasn't any fruit, so he curses the tree, and he still didn't have anything to eat, so he goes into the temple, throws things around, makes a mess of things. Jesus was just in a bad mood that day. That couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus wanted to communicate so clearly that everything was going to change, that everything was going to change. He wanted to communicate the nature of God. And he did it in an incredibly dramatic way. Understand that God has a purpose for your life, that he wants to draw you to him. He wants you to live fully sold out for him. And he's serious about that. It's not just something that we add on as an extra thing that's nice. Jesus is serious. Let's pray. Father God, I, I, um, I thank you for the chance to teach this morning. And I thank you for your word God, I thank you that um, when we dive and dive in, that there's just so much for us to learn that takes us to you, God. Um, Lord, forgive us when we play around. Forgive us when our relationship with you is an afterthought. And God, help us, help us to begin to live in a new way. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.